You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 24th day of March 2012. I'd like to welcome everyone back to the program And as always, invite you to look into my website, CorbettReport.com, for previous episodes of this podcast, as well as articles, interviews, and videos, and radio shows that I've conducted over the past five years. And, of course, there you'll also be able to find links to other alternative media websites that I'm linked to and that I support. And you can also find on the support tab of CorbettReport.com, Ways to support The Corbett Report and all the work that I'm doing. Of course, this is listener-supported alternative media, and it comes to you via you. So once again, thank you so much to all the people who have signed up to be subscribers to CorbettReport.com and or who have purchased DVDs. Once again, none of this is possible without you, so a big pat on the back to all of you out there for that. And, of course, as I've mentioned in the most recent episode of Corbett Report Radio, I do get a lot of requests to cover various topics through contact, the contact form at CorbettReport.com. Of course, I can't respond to everyone individually, but I do appreciate that. And as always, if you're wondering if I have covered a certain topic or interviewed a certain guest before, please use the search bar at CorbettReport.com. It's at the top right corner of the, the banner to make sure that I have or haven't covered something before. Often I get requests to interview interview people that I already have interviewed or to cover topics that I have covered in the past. So the search bar is your friend. And on that note, as always, we have a ton of information to get through in today's episode. So let's get straight into the podcast. Welcome, my friends, to episode 223 of the Corbett Report podcast, Revolution Impossible. Seemingly one of the only things that almost every political dissident of almost every conceivable political persuasion can agree on these days is that the U.S., and indeed the world, is ripe for some type of political revolution. And joining us now, the former governor of Minnesota, Jesse Ventura. He's out with a brand new book entitled Don't Start the Revolution Without Me. Uh, Governor, how could they start a revolution without you? That simply is not going to happen. Well, I look at it this way, Wolf. I'm hoping that they do. You know, that's one of the questions I raise. Do I have to come back here and start it? When you say come back here, we're going to get to this. You've been spending a lot of time in Mexico lately. Hold on for a moment on that. Let's talk presidential politics right now. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong. You don't like Hillary Clinton. You don't like Barack Obama. You don't like John McCain. So who are you going to vote for? Well, you know what I wish they had in the United States, Wolf? I wish they had on all the ballots, be it local, state, or federal, none of the above. And everyone chuckles at that, but what that truly would mean is that I'm here, I'm participating in the system, I'm voting, but it's also a vote of no confidence in your government. And I believe strongly that if they did that, at local, state, and national, you would see none of the above occasionally win. So, so what's wrong with these three presidential candidates? I see corporatism, fascism, crony capitalism. Um, I don't see a free market. I see a police state. I see an American empire. I see 700 military bases in 135 foreign countries. I see 5,000 dead bodies in Iraq. A welfare warfare state which gives out billions of dollars in foreign aid for dictators to build up huge armies. I see uh, America that's lost its way. Republicrats, Republicans and Democrats, who both pretty much stand for the same thing. I, I do not see true democracy. I do not hear the voice of the people. Um, Finally, we've risen up. The ink was barely dry on the wretched Lisbon Treaty when they were violating its terms to throw even more of other people's money at economies they have destroyed. Most of these people have never had a proper job outside politics, and it shows. They inhabit a bubble of their own creation, like a priesthood. And in taking away the power of the ballot box, as they have, they've removed the people's ability to prick that bubble and let in a little reality. In short, they've stolen our birthright and that of our children and grandchildren, and that's why Europe needs a revolution. My first question to you is, your main message is capitalism is a failure, revolution is a solution. Can you explain to us how you would 
apply this statement to the current situation in, in the United States? Well, I think the situation in the United States and the situation in the world, because the United States uh, economy is obviously integrated into and dominant in the world uh, capitalist system, that what we see is that this is a system, capitalism, that has caused you know, untold suffering. Well, you know, uh, I do believe that there's some kind of revolution coming. Um, I don't know if it'll be violent or not, I'm not necessarily saying that, but there's got to be some sort of social or economic up, up, upheaval that's coming because we can't continue to keep raising gas prices, food prices, they can't continue to go up without there being some sort of critical mass situation happening. No, I don't think one has to go too far out on a limb to posit that revolutionary fervor is very much in the air and is being picked up right now by people of various political persuasions, even those with whom I am obviously in fundamental political disagreement. I think it's safe to say that a lot of people have the understanding right now that the system as it is currently functioning, or uh, to be more precisely accurate, malfunctioning on purpose for the benefit of very few, really cannot continue in this manner for very long and that the people really have had enough. And I think anyone who has been listening to this podcast or any of my other work for any length of time probably understands the very many, many reasons for that, the political, social, and economic breakdown of our society and civilization, and the real nexus that we find ourselves at. And of course, when we find ourselves at those junctures in history, Revolution, revolutionary fervor, revolutionary sentiment, and revolutionary rhetoric become, well, quite uh, fever-pitched. And uh, again, I think we have all experienced some of that and perhaps even been taken in by some of that in our own time. But today, the question really is, what kind of revolution are people talking about? What is revolution? How do people propose to affect it? What kind of change can really come through that type of revolutionary moment in history? It's a, it's a very good question. It's actually much, much more important and much more difficult to answer than it might at first case or at first blush appear. Because a lot of people tend to think that revolution is simply something that happens. It's a spontaneous outgrowth of a certain political moment, and the people pick up their arms, and the evil leader is overthrown, and everything is put back in its right place, and the world continues on in its inevitable march of progress. And I think that at least uh, probably the way that I phrase that should have instilled a couple of doubts about that type of narrative, although that is pretty much the way that the revolutionary narrative is presented to us. And as listeners to my earlier podcast on the Romanian revolution and what it accomplished, or perhaps more importantly did not accomplish, will already know that that narrative is badly in need of fine-tuning or repair or perhaps complete alteration, a revolution in our thinking about revolution, one might even say. Well, let's start from the ground up because obviously revolution tends to invoke in our minds the idea of the bloody uprising, the chopping off of the king's head and the instituting of a new order. And since the podcast here and all the work that I've been doing is quite uh, quite openly and quite vocally against the institution of the New World Order that the so-called would-be elite want to invoke, I think we should also be wary of other people who uh, claim that they want to institute a new order in the name of overthrowing the New World Order. I think we have to be wary of the bloody uprising and all of the various ways that even well-meaning people can be whipped up into the most bloody revolutionary fervor with the promise of instituting a fairer system. And this is an idea that goes back centuries and really has many of its philosophical roots in the writings of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who was more or less directly responsible for the French Revolution. Now, the French Revolution is one that I constantly come back to when I'm trying to make this point about how bloody uprisings are not what they might appear to be or not what some people might fantasize them about them being as some sort of great opportunity to seize power for the hands of, in the hands of the people and institute the perfect shining utopian republic or whatever it is that people think they're going to institute in order to better govern their lives. Well, I think the French Revolution serves as the most stark warning of what is possible in the name of that type of utopian thinking, because it did happen exactly uh, exactly as I, I posit that it 
inevitably does. The bloody revolution, the bloody uprising inevitably turns into the tyranny it is trying to fight against. And people might point to the American Revolution as a better example of what's possible. But as we've seen, no revolution is perfect. No revolution will leave the world perfectly spotless and in perpetuity, a place that will be uh, enjoyable for our grandchildren and their grandchildren and their grandchildren forever. Of course, that's not the case. And of course, that's something that the founding fathers of the United States even openly talked about, how a revolution would be needed every 20 years to wipe the slate clean and start again. And that's something that obviously has not been taken to heart as we are now a couple of hundred years into the American enterprise, as it were, and obviously have arrived at a state of tyranny far worse in many respects than the the colonists were experiencing under the reign of King George. So what then to make of revolution? Well, once again, I don't want to just gloss over this point about the French Revolution and what happened there, how the French Revolution so quickly devolved into the Committee for Public Safety and the reign of the Jacobins and Robespierre and the reign of terror and the bloody rule of the guillotine. This is an extremely important piece of history for us to know and to understand about how well-meaning people who truly were upset and fed up with the system as it was under the Ancien Regime and King Louis and all of the uh, the abuses that they were suffering and the rising price of food because of the failed cro- uh, harvests year after year and all of that spilt over into a revolution that ended up eating itself. And once again, I don't want to just gloss over this. It's an extremely important point. So let's take a short listen to a very good British documentary on the overview of the reign of terror. My favorite quote is Sanju's saying, the Republic consists in the extermination of all who oppose it. In other words, the point of the revolution is slaughtering anyone who might disagree with the government at that moment in time. That is what Robespierre and Saint-Just are all about. They're excited by the possibility of a great and general bloodletting out of which the new perfect man may come. What followed in the winter of 1793 was one of the major purges of the terror, characteristically packaged by Robespierre in a wrapping of intense self-congratulation. Citizen... People's representatives, you have before your eyes Europe's record and your own. And already you can form a conclusion from it that the universe has an interest in our conservation. Which of us does not feel his faculties enlarged? Which of us does not feel himself raised above humanity itself on reflecting that we are not just for one people, but for the universe, for the men alive today, but for those who will exist? In the world we are creating, all people will become a single people of brothers. And you would have as many friends as there are men on earth. But it is time to teach the imbeciles who are unaware of it and the perverts who pretend to doubt it that the French Republic exists. You can feel a legitimate pride. Congratulate yourselves on having annihilated royalty and punished kings, overthrown the idols on whom the world groveled. But above all else, for running the blade of the law against the criminal heads that rose among you. That's one of the psychological crunch points which which drives the terror onwards, is the sense that they're being stopped from doing something wonderful, something good for everybody, by this persistent opposition, by all these enemies that continuously emerge from the woodwork. They could be doing so much, they could be creating a reign of virtue, they could be making heaven on earth. You know, that does 
drive them closer and closer towards the idea that really the only solution is a, is a total extermination of their enemies, wherever they may be found. In a permanent emergency, the Constitution suspended until the peace. That might never come. It might come in our son's time, in our grandson's time, who cares? It's more fun and clearer and more invigorating to do the killing than it is to have philosophical debates about whether it's right to do so. Tabriso. The stinking rat. <laughs> Briso. Husha. Dufriche Falaise. Dorléans. Roland. Verguignol. Condorcet. Isnard. Boileau, Clavia, Barbaro, Bouzo, Pétion, Rabot de Saint-Étienne, Zinoviev, Bukharin, Kamenev, Radek, Rykov, Rakovsky, the execution of the Brissot faction led one deputy to call the convention the most dangerous place in France. But he was wrong. Lyon had a better claim to that. Couton had left now and Collot was there to finish the job of purifying the city. He has to make Carthage in some ways of Lyon. He has to go in there with a sense of destruction uh, so extreme almost without historical precedent, uh, that will make such an impact on the rest of France that no one will dare do what Lyon has, has done. Citizen Robespierre, those fears for the suffering fatherland which determined me to come here at your suggestion were not misplaced. We have created two new tribunals to judge the traitors. As you say, it is necessary that Lyon shall no longer exist. You could be executed for very, very little, essentially. What was crucial was numbers rather than guilt or innocence uh, in that sort of situation. I cannot wait for the conspirators to be liquidated. The impatience of the sovereign people thrills through my fibres and heart. Take care of your health, my friend. It is precious to Republicans. They do a horrible thing later in the autumn when they don't think things are going fast enough. They think they can do better if they use artillery. And they literally chain dozens of people together and herd them out and fire cannon at them. But it didn't work very well, and so they had to be finished off by soldiers with bayonets. And after a while, the soldiers revolted. They wouldn't kill people in that way. It was just too horrible. So they had to revert to the normal methods. 2,000 people were massacred in Lyon. Republicans, but of the wrong type. That is a sample from the documentary Terror, Robespierre and the French Revolution, which first aired on BBC Two back in July of 2009. And I would certainly hope for my more imaginative listeners, it does not take me piecing together all of the pieces of that puzzle to demonstrate exactly how the current modern-day revolutionary fervor could very easily be steered into that type of revolutionary logic by which the revolutionaries themselves, should they ever gain the power, gain the, uh, the control of the levers of power of society, would then turn the apparatus of society and, more importantly, the, the law enforcement and the army and all of that against anyone that they saw to be counter-revolutionaries or reactionaries, precisely as happened during the Reign of Terror. 
And precisely during that reign of terror, of course, the entire revolutionary project basically became the letting of blood that seemed to be pretty much what it was about by the end of that. And the only way to restore order in that situation was to bring about the French Empire, the death of the Republic, the beginning of the Empire, the beginning of the reign of Napoleon, and eventually after Napoleon's uh, ouster, the reign of the monarchy reinstituted and the reestablishment of order in the traditional sense. So for whatever the French Revolution may have accomplished, I think it will forever be marred by what it inevitably, I think, devolved into. And I say inevitably advisedly, because not only can we point to Rousseau as the philosophical master of the, the or, or the wellspring from which the philosophy of the Jacobins and the revolution really drank from, but also it's important to understand who Rousseau was and where he was coming from, not least of which the fact that he was, of course, a Freemason. And I think it's important to understand that these these types of revolutionary revolutions, which seem to be taking taking the old order and sweeping it aside, may in fact actually be part of a plan to, from time to time, cleanse the palate, so to speak. And unfortunately, that's done not by quaffing on a cracker, but by gorging on rivers of blood. And once again, this is a point that needs to be teased out in some more detail. So let's turn to a recent conversation that I had with Aaron Franz of the Age of Trans transitions.com about this concept of revolution and specifically how the enlightenment led to the inevitable reign of terror and the letting of blood in France and what enlightenment really means. So let's listen to this episode of Corbett Report Radio where Aaron Franz talks about the concept of enlightenment. Sure, sure. Well, again, uh, we have to get back to terms. Enlightenment being uh, the actual goal of the Illuminist, the the Illuminist being, you know, the members of secret societies such as the Illuminati, they are the Illuminists, and what they seek is enlightenment. This works on many different levels. They, uh, of course, want enlightenment for the self, but um, this this has to do with alchemy as well, very detailed state, but. So, so the first uh, part of their enlightenment is enlightening themselves and then uh, turning that enlightenment out into the outside world. And this is the aspect of alchemy that personally I'm, I'm very interested in that doesn't seem to get much attention in that, uh, yes, alchemy is a process used to improve uh, the individual. Basically, it's the first version of self-help and it's... Uh, very legitimate, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. I don't think alchemy is bad. The The deal is when alchemy goes out into the greater world and the enlightened individual uh, decides that it's their place to enlighten the entire world based on their own design because you know, they're the enlightened ones, so um, they have to go out and enlighten the whole world. And I'm kind of getting off topic from the European enlightenment, but this is the philosophy behind it. And of course, European enlightenment, um, again, their philosophy was this egalitarian, their ideal is the egalitarian government where um, people would be equal, fraternity, equality, um, uh, liberty. Fraternity. Yeah, liberty, that's it. Yeah, those are the three uh, tenets there. So, so it's, all, it's all about, you know, uh, giving equality to the people this eventually leads to the socialist. This is the socialist idea because it's forcing the concept of equality onto society. And how do you mandate equality is basically the problem in the end, the socialist problem. And certainly we can see, I mean, if, if we think of the French Revolution as some sort of flowering of enlightenment, we see how quickly that devolved into a type of despotism of its own. And um, some, I think, would argue that that was pretty much inevitable based on the, the ideological roots of enlightenment and what it sought to do. And as you indicate there, enlightenment, I mean, it carries with it so many uh, esoteric and mythical associations and connotations. But, of course, we can think of something like Prometheus stealing the fire from the gods and bringing it down to humans, uh, you know, enlightening humanity and, and bringing them knowledge. But of course, 
that's the same knowledge, presumably, as in the, the Eden story that, uh, that Satan tries to get uh, Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of knowledge. I mean, it's all, always about this bringing of knowledge to the people and, and what can be done with it. And of course, the Enlightenment has all of that wrapped up into it. It's quite a, in quite a, an incredible uh, puzzle to, to piece together. Yes, and Prometheus, of course, is stealing the fire from the gods, fire, the great symbol of the revolutionaries. And, of course, there's James H. Billington's book, uh, Fire in the Minds of Men, which I think all of us should read to understand this topic at a much deeper level and really understand what's going on. Great book. Uh, but anyway, fire and also the color red, um, the color of revolution oftentimes is red, um, it has to do, again, so many, <laughs> so many areas you can go into here, but part of it is actually a blood sacrifice and the coming of violence. Again, as, um, historical example is the French reign of terror. Uh, the intellectual elite of the revolution, um, began to just systematically plan the, uh, killing off of masses of the population just, just as a mere, um, act of uh, getting things in order. Get, getting the it, it was uh, again and well, you have what to take the, care of the reactionaries, of course. Exactly, exactly. But but actually, on on a deeper level, this is seen as an occult sacrifice, a blood ritual, uh, passing through of fire, the color red, blood, fire, um, also heat rising up. So. Uh, as a result of this blood sacrifice, the idea is that society is raised up to a higher level. That's that's the occult idea there. And, and that's interesting, because what about the idea that people then can be made to go along with this type of bloodletting and bloodshedding, because it, it is framed in that way as this type of uh, purification, almost uh, a type of um, sacrifice, as you say? Well, yeah, that's the creation of a religion, the, and again, Billington calls it the revolutionary faith, and he goes as far to say, as to say that the revolutionary faith is the faith of our time. That's a very intense statement and very profound when you think about it. The, the revolutionary faith, because people, if if you look at any given revolution, and again, even just small thought revolutions, uh, you can see true believers pop up, and they are very intense if you <laughs> to say the least mm-hmm. well i think it, there's no doubt we we are being prepped as a society as a, as a civilization for some sort of cataclysmic event and um, one can imagine that could take a revolutionary uh, flavor very easily so on that note we will continue talking with aaron france the age of transitions.com right after these messages So once again, the point here is that revolutions that are some sort of mob mentality group think uh, attempts to basically kill anything that goes against the mob cannot be productive. They cannot be the answer that we are seeking. And absolutely, unfortunately, it has happened time and time again throughout history, and it has devolved into sheer bloodletting for the sake of bloodletting far too many times. And unfortunately, that is just the sacrifice in one form or another for whatever group may be puppeteering it, may be steering the course of events, may be seeding the ground, as it were, with the false philosophies like the Russos who get us to believe in the concept of the general will and how people must die if they oppose the general will and how people must be forced to be free, to use Russo's phrase, which became really the ethos of that reign of terror. And exactly those types of false philosophies can so easily lead the the mob astray. And that's precisely what we want to avoid. And once again, I hope it does not take too much imagination on the part of the listener to understand how... How, for example, people like myself and others have expressed concern with the epithet, the truth movement, because certainly if we are the truth movement, then those who oppose us must be the liars, and thus they must be taken care of, and the that type of logic will inevitably devolve into how do we take care of that problem, how do we stop the liars, and unfortunately it quickly devolves into the mob mentality, 
bloodletting for bloodletting's sake. So once again, I hope that that point has been made clear that unfortunately, even the greatest causes and led by the greatest people with the greatest intentions can and often does devolve into complete tyranny. And it's important to understand how that has happened in the past in order to avoid it. So it seems that we've arrived at a point where I would be willing to posit that what we really need is not some sort of general mob mentality of people taking some sort of vigilante justice against anyone who stands in their way. What we need is a group of people who are examining the issues for themselves, who are coming to an understanding of what the problem is through their own readings and their own uh, understandings, their own, their own quest to find this information, and are coming up with their own solutions for this problem on an individual level, rather than some sort of mob mentality rushing along with the group to get things done. But Perhaps that is a pipe dream, and not only because it is extremely difficult to imagine the vast mobs of unfortunately zombified people, and I say zombified because I don't like to posit the people as being sheeple or zombies, I think unfortunately the public has been deliberately dumbed down for a very long time, and that's why we have arrived at a state where people are much more knowledgeable about the latest fashions or the latest sports scores or what have you than they will ever be about what is happening on a day-to-day basis, like the types of things we cover here on the Corbett Report, the things that will actually affect their lives and the lives of their progeny. But unfortunately, we, we have been dumbed down into that state where people are zombified for so long. And not only that, it is not only a biochemical process through the various biochemical attacks that we're undergoing at all times. And it's not only that the media keeps us distracted with meaningless distractions. At a certain point, it becomes obvious that the very function of the media that we consume is to distract us, to take our minds off of what actually is happening in the world, to take our minds off of the events leading from one to another in a, in a chain of causality through which we can piece together the direction that our society is heading and hopefully avert that course into a society that is led completely by the image and the spectacle. This is an extremely important point. It is philosophical in nature, and it is somewhat abstract, but it is extremely important that we understand this and how this process, even the nature of the media that we're consuming, not just the media itself, but the nature of that media actually, to a certain extent, governs the way that we think about world events, or more accurately, the way that we cannot think about world events, and thus can never come to a true understanding of what's happening, let alone come up with a plan for changing what is happening. Now, again, this is an extremely important point, so I will leave it to a, a philosopher that very few, I imagine, will have heard of. I certainly had not heard of him myself before stumbling on this clip, but this is just such a remarkable breakdown of the situation we find ourselves in that I had to share it with you. It's from a lecture delivered by a philosopher named Wilhelm, Wilhelm Flusser. And he, I, I know remarkably little about him, except for the fact that he is remarkably little known in the English-speaking world. He is best known for his writings in German and Spanish. But he is a, a professor who lectured and, and wrote extensively on the nature of media and how it affects our society. And he passed away in 1991, but in April of 1990 in Budapest, he delivered a lecture on the Romanian Revolution. Once again, that revolution that we covered in the earlier episode of this podcast talking about uh, the, the Ceausescu and how to overthrow a dictator. Well, he was talking uh, about that revolution. On, but However, his lecture makes clear that he didn't really believe that a revolution had really happened in any sense of the word at all, which is sort of where we left off that How to Overthrow a Dictator episode of this podcast. So you might want to refresh yourself by listening to that podcast again, but let's listen to Wilhelm Flusser talking about revolution in the age of the image. I believe that whatever happened in Romania merits philosophical reflection. Of course, it's too early. We do not have the necessary distance. But still, 
something seemed to have happened there. It is called here a revolution. I think that's a wrong term, because revolution is a political category, and it doesn't look to me that what happened over there is political at all. Now, whatever happened there may, in the future, be interpreted as a turning point. It may be that what French and American philosophers are used to call post-history, post-histoire, has found its first, or almost first, expression in that small country of Broadway, if I may say so. Imagine for a moment, and this is why I accepted the invitation to come here to this meeting. Imagine for an instance that such a thing should happen, let's say, in the United States, or even in Western Europe. Imagine for an instance that television in the United States would take over. And I think you will have imagined the end of history. The end of what we are used to call history. Now, of course, it happened all the way in Romania, where nobody cares about. But imagine for a moment that it happens in what we are used to call the centers of decision. Even in Moscow. I will submit to you the hypothesis that a new situation in the image culture is about to happen. But in order to, su to sustain such an hypothesis, I will have to give you a few theoretical concepts. Please look at what I wrote on this blackboard. We have at least two possibilities to face our world. One is through image, and then other is through linear writing. Originally, man was immersed in his circumstance. Now, when Homo sapiens sapiens came about, he made a step back from this circumstance, what Heidegger calls a Schritt zurück, and he tried to look at the circumstance from a subjective distance, and the result was an image. Now, the image transforms the world into a scene, like in a theater, scene, S-C-E-N-E. -E. Through image, the world has a scenic character. It shows contexts, what Wittgenstein calls Sachverhalte, or what Heidegger calls Verhältnisse, Bezüge. The world seen through imagination is a context wherein things relate to each other. Now, this has a magical character. Every image is strongly, magically loaded. When the first images were made, let's say, at Lascaux, they were meant to orient people in the world. For instance, they were meant to show how to hunt oxen or, or ponies. And when people were exposed to these images, they probably danced. They made ritual happenings. And then they went out to hunt the animal. It is absolutely impossible to see the image outside magic. That is why I spoke yesterday in my brief intervention about voodoo. There is a voodoo character in every image. 
I told you that the image had a purpose to orient people from outside in the world in which they are thrown. An image is a possibility for me to step out from the world and see it from outside. So they are sorts of maps. But they are mediations, or as you say here, media, which is a barbarian uh, way of to use uh, Latin. So uh, they are mediations. They mean the world. But by meaning the world, they also hide it. This is an inner dialectics of every mediation. In German, for those who speak German, it becomes very clear. Bilder verstellen, was sie vorstellen. Sie stellen sich vor das, was sie vorstellen sollen. Now, this inner dialectics, which is responsible for the fact that images hide the world, is the, is the reason for a very profound alienation. Images are meant for people to orient themselves in the world. But when they become very strong, people use their experience in the world to orient themselves in the image. The image becomes the concrete reality. And the world is only a pretext. Now this inversion of the relationship between the world of experience and the world of imagination, this is called by the prophets idolatry. This is the reason why Platon wanted to prohibit art and images in the Republic. Images are anti-Republican, anti-political. The, the purpose of image in this stage is to hide what happens. Now when this idolatry, this curious sort of paganism, against which not only Jewish prophets, but also the pre-Socratian philosophers argued. When this became too dense, linear writing was invented. The purpose of linear writing was to open up the images by explaining them, and thus open up a vision of the experienced world. Now let me stress the difference between a scenic and a processual vision. In the scene, things happen. Everything is an happening. In the linear, processual world, nothing happens. Everything is an event. The difference between an happening and an event is that a happening is the result of chance, of accident. It is an accident which becomes necessary. Those of you who know Monod, for instance, the hasard de la nécessité, and those who know the reflections about chaos, which are now in fashion, will understand what I mean. The world of happening is a chaotic world, but everything repeats itself in that chaotic world. But in the event of history, in the vision of the world as a process, nothing ever repeats itself. Everything is an event which has causes and will have effects. And it is a world which can be rationally explained. To give you an example, for instance, the coronation of a king is a happening. It is the result of some accident. For instance, the old king dies. It happens all the time. Le roi mort, vive le roi. And it is always something festive and magical. Now the discussion of a law in parliament is not a happening. It's an event. It has causes and it will have effects, and it is done in order to have effects. The consciousness which corresponds to image is called the magical, mythical consciousness. 
and the consciousness which corresponds to linear writing, to this processual vision, is called political consciousness. Please understand what I am driving at. Television cannot be, like any other image, a political thing. It's anti-political by its very structure. And political consciousness is always directed against the image. Now, as you know, Western history begins with linear writing for the simple fact that before the invention of linear writing, there was no history. There were no events. Everything only happened. And with the invention of linear writing, events were created. But of course, images didn't give up. As the linear writing advanced against images, in order to explain them away, the images infiltrated themselves into the texts, and they began to illustrate the texts. The dynamics of Western civilization, this inattention within Western civilization, which renders it so explosive and so dangerous for other civilizations, is the fact that image and text, imagination and conceptual thinking, magic and politics are always in conflict with us. Now, during most of his Western history, this was a very creative process. Imagination became ever more conceptual and conceptual thinking ever more imaginative. But with the invention of print, with Gutenberg, this changed. Images were eliminated from our culture. They were enclosed into glorified ghettos called museums or academies. And the situation was dominated by writing. triumph of linear writing was enlightenment, 18th century. And this is also the moment of the most developed political thinking. But as rational thought, political and scientific thought advanced, its message became ever less and less imaginable. You can see that with science. Science projects a vision of the world which is perfectly conceivable but totally inimaginable. So that in the 19th century, the world was becoming less and less imaginable. And this is the real reason why photography was invented. Let me say the following. The characteristic of linear writing, the political characteristic of linear writing before the invention of newspapers is that you write in private and then you publish in the open space. And if you want to get at the message, you have to go in the open space, get at the text and take it home in order to read it. Now this dialectics between private creation and publication, this is the dialectics of politics. Politics is the distinction between a private space and a public space. An oike and an agora, a domus and a forum. Now this pendulum notion I go out from the private space into the public space in order to get that information. I take the information on the public space and take it home in order to elaborate on it and store it away. This is the dynamics of political consciousness. Hegel, as you know, used to call it the unhappy consciousness because he said, when I leave home to conquer the world, I lose myself. And when I go home in order to find myself again, I lose the world. And this pendulum is political consciousness, 
Political consciousness is always unhappy. There can be no political paradise. Because political consciousness is an unhappy consciousness. Every consciousness is unhappy. If you want to be happy, it doesn't help you to have images. You have to become a worm. A worm, I think, an earthworm, I think, is happy. Now, if you take this into account, please consider what is happening to images. The images no longer publish. They are elaborated in a private place and they go directly to the other private place. The sender is private and the receiver is private. And the public spaces has become unnecessary, redundant. I think there is a party in Hungary which is called Forum. Let those people understand that the Forum is no longer operative. There is no use for a Forum any longer because everything goes directly from the private place to the private place where the public space, political space, used to lie. Now there are visible or invisible cables. Now I do not say that the same is not true of writing. Newspapers, for instance, are distributed to the private space. So even newspapers can be anti-political. Still, there is something in what is called the information revolution, and here the term revolution is correct, not in Romania, but in information. The information revolution, what the impact of information revolution is, that if you want to be informed, you have to stay home. If you go to the public space, you lose information. Well, there is obviously so much to be said about that presentation and the various topics that Professor Flusser talks about there. So I certainly hope that people will follow the link in the show notes for today's episode to watch the entire talk in its full context and better understand some of the things that he's talking about. But there, there are just so many points there that I'd love to pick up on. And of course, this is an idea that is not entirely new or completely unknown uh, before Professor Flusser's talk there in 1990. Certainly, it has been expounded by various people in different paradigms, and perhaps the most uh, obvious philosophical forerunner to this type of talk are the Situationists and Guy Debord, who was uh, a, a French Marxist theorist and a writer who was writing in the middle of the 20th century. And perhaps his most uh, fav famous work is The Society of the Spectacle. And I'll read some excerpts from that because I think it's probably even more relevant today than when he was actually writing. And Society of the Spectacle opens with a, an epigraph from Feuerbach, but for the present age, which prefers the sign to the thing signified, the copy to the original, representation to reality, appearance to essence, truth is considered profane, and only illusion is sacred. Sacredness is in fact held to be enhanced in proportion, as truth decreases and illusion increases, so that the highest degree of illusion comes to be the highest degree of sacredness. And then the text proper of the Society of the Spectacle starts, quote, In societies dominated by modern conditions of production, life is presented as an immense accumulation of spectacles. Everything that was directly lived has receded into a representation. The images detached from every aspect of life merge into a common stream in which the unity of that life can no longer be recovered. Fragmented views of reality regroup themselves into a new unity as a separate pseudo-world that can only be looked at. The specialization of images of the world evolves into a world of autonomized images, where even the deceivers are deceived. The spectacle is a concrete inversion of life, an autonomous movement of the non-living. The spectacle presents itself simultaneously as society itself, as a part of society, and as a means of unification. As a part of society, it is the focal point of all vision and consciousness. But due to the very fact that this sector is separate, it is in reality the domain of delusion and false consciousness. The unification it achieves is nothing but an official language of universal separation. The spectacle is not a collection of images. It is a social relation between people that is mediated by images. The spectacle cannot be understood as a mere visual excess produced by mass media technologies. It is a worldview that has actually been materialized, a view of a world that has become objective. 
Understood in its totality, the spectacle is both the result and the project of the dominant mode of production. It is not a mere decoration added to the real world, it is the very heart of this real society's unreality. In all of its particular manifestations, news, propaganda, advertising, entertainment, the spectacle represents the dominant model of life. The spectacle cannot be abstractly contrasted to concrete social activity. Each side of such a duality is itself divided. The spectacle that falsifies reality is nevertheless a real product of that reality. Conversely, real life is materially invaded by the contemplation of the spectacle and ends up absorbing it and aligning itself with it. Objective reality is present on both sides. Each of these seemingly fixed concepts has no other basis than its transformation into its opposite. Reality emerges within the spectacle, and the spectacle is real. This reciprocal alienation is the essence and support of the existing society. In a world that is really upside down, the true is a moment of the false. End quote. Well, I will, of course, provide the link to that text so you can continue reading The Society of the Spectacle for yourself. And I, I hope that uh, you can re- extract the Marxist trappings of that rhetoric so that you can get to the heart of what's really being said there. And I think there is a very profound critique of the society that we find ourselves living in contained within that text. One that, as I say, I think applies even more today than it did at the time in which this was written. But uh, this is something that I touched on briefly in my interview with Douglas Lane back in September of 2010. We talked about the situationists and how this idea of the spectacle really guiding our society has come to unfortunately take on all too much of a reality. And we've gotten to the point where, unfortunately, it really plays into what we've talked about on Corporate Report Radio earlier, the type of learned helplessness by which, unfortunately, the public has been so inundated with this society of the spectacle and taking the spectacle for reality that people tend to think now of the world as this outside thing which they access through their TV screen or their computer screen inside of their own home, and it is just another image to be consumed. It is not something that we affect directly. It is not something that we actually have an effect over or on, not something that we work on, not something that can be shaped by us, but something that is merely there for us to take a look at, for us to see this sort of inevitable, creeping, crawling, totalitarian fascism that we all see coming and that we are all opposed to, but none of us seem to know how to influence that because the images themselves never seem to change. And to a certain extent, that paradigm is being broken with the rise of citizen media, citizen journalism, alternative media, these types of alternative images that are suddenly breaking through and crashing through that control, that complete and utter totalitarian uniformity of image that we've been subjected to in the corporate propaganda model for so long that there is some sign that people are waking up and realizing that the world can still be changed and can still be affected by real individuals taking this information into their own hands. But is it is it enough? And can we really combat, can we fight fire with fire? Can we combat the world of the spectacle by creating more images? Well, certainly, I think what this points to is that if we are being put into this society where we are truly being told that we are these passive receptacles for all of this imagery and that we are just to look at the images coming on our screens as the commander-in-chief signs in draconian law after draconian law and unfortunately the totalitarian bent takes uh, shape all around the world and as the economic collapse quickens and all of these other horrific events we see unfolding continue to unfold on our computer screens or on our TV screens... Well, if we are being conditioned into accepting that and at the same time being conditioned into the idea that there is some sort of big revolutionary moment coming, then we have to get off of this train ride before the train arrives at the station because the station is inevitably going to be a type of revolution that will only seek to benefit those who want to control us even 
more. And I think we've shown in this episode how that is not only possible, but in fact has happened throughout history and did happen during times like the Reign of Terror after the French Revolution. So once again, the point is not to be whipped into that revolutionary fervor, not to keep on that train until it arrives at the station that is known as Apocalypse or Armageddon. We have to get off of that train. We have to steer it in a different direction. And the only way to do that is to get ourselves detached from that world, that society of the spectacle, which is an almost unthinkable thing for probably anyone who's listening to this podcast. Because again, when we are getting our information through computers and through TV screens and via our iPhone or whatever slave device we might be subscribed to, unfortunately, we are invested in that system. And I'm not here on a crystal pedestal saying that I'm anywhere above any of you. I'm still very much caught in that reality myself. But I think this brings us back to the only paradigm of resistance and revolution that makes any sense and that I have ever advocated. And that is the revolution of our understanding, the revolution of consciousness, the revolution of the mind by which we will start to understand that we can and we do have a part to play in shaping the world around us, not simply accepting it as images on a TV or computer screen. Screen. And the only way to do that is to start A, informing ourselves, and B, really and truly taking it into our own hands and forming the communities that will make the difference. So in that context, once again, it comes down to things like urban gardening and alternative currency systems, which are the only ways we can detach ourselves from the system that has been erected around us and which is now being blasted out into our into our eyes and into our ears 24-7 by the various media that we consume. So once again, it comes down to taking it into your own hands. And unfortunately, there's no way for me to tell you how to do that. The point of this type of revolution, the revolution of the mind, is that it can only be affected by individuals working individually in the way that occurs to them. So for some of you, it might mean doing something like this type of podcast, of taking it into your own hands to inform yourself and spread that information to others. Or for others, it might be doing something like starting a community garden. It might be getting involved in the local economy and starting some sort of alternative currency system. It might be just simply spreading this type of information to others and, and finding uh, just starting that type of community. It might be something as simple as starting a book club or something with the, uh, the people in your neighborhood so that you actually interact with them. It can take all sorts of different forms, and there are all sorts of people out there working in all sorts of different ways that will affect different people in different ways. And I'm not sitting here proclaiming that I have the answer. Of course, this podcast is not meant to give you an answer from the clouds or from heaven. It's just meant to get you thinking along the ways, along the lines of the ways that we can affect some sort of real change, some sort of real revolution. So once again, the revolution is not to be found in picking up arms and attacking the, uh, the, the people on the TV screens that we see on a daily basis or, or the people that we're being told to hate. The revolution comes from within. The revolution starts at home. The revolution is you. And on that heady note, that's all for today. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me again next week for another edition of The Corbett Report.